0: And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. Three, two, one, one. It's the Novus Ordo watch, Trapcast. You've gotta be kidding. Habemus Papa. You can't make the stuff up. Ladies and gentlemen, Tratcast is back with episode number 34, Let That Sink In. Welcome everyone, proponents and opponents of Sedevacantism, and those who are unsure of what to think about it all. This podcast is for you. If you've been wondering how things are going in the Vatican II Church with regard to ecumenism, how much all of that journeying has accomplished in the last six decades, let me point you to a news story that just came out on November 18th. The title is, Why Catholics and Orthodox Might Once Again Celebrate Easter on the Same Date. When I saw that headline on my screen, it hit me. They've been doing ecumenism for 60 years, and they cannot even agree on what day of the year to celebrate Christ's resurrection. But hey, they think that if they dialogue and pray long enough, then eventually they'll come to an agreement on dogma, such as whether the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son or from the Father only. In fact... If you've been following this podcast and the Novos Ordo Watch website for a while, you may recall this story from January of 2017, when the head of the Vatican's ecumenical office, the so-called Cardinal Kurt Koch, lamented that there was no consensus among the various parties at the ecumenical table regarding even so much as the goal of ecumenism. In other words, they can't even agree on why they're talking to each other. It's insane. In a talk given on January 10th, 2017, at the Theological Faculty of Paderborn, Germany, Cox said that there are about as many ideas about the goal of ecumenism as there are concepts of what the church is or should be. He said, and I quote, Each church and ecclesial community has its own specific ideas about what church and church unity mean, and each strives to turn its denomination-specific concept into the goal of ecumenism. This means that the lack of agreement about the goal of the ecumenical movement is essentially rooted in the fact that an ecumenical understanding about the nature of the churches and church unity is largely Wanting. Unquote. Very, very interesting. But you know what's even more interesting? Even though they all disagree on what the goal of ecumenism is, they all agree on what it is not. Namely, conversion to the Roman Catholic religion. How ironic. Because that, of course, is the only permissible, long-term goal that any dialogue with Protestant or Orthodox denominations could have. And yet, the only Orthodox position regarding that is the one rejected by all the ecumenical participants, including the Vatican. In late 1949, the Holy Office under Pope Pius XII issued an instruction on the ecumenical movement that was already blossoming everywhere, and this instruction, issued to the Catholic bishops of the world, made clear that when discussing religious matters with Protestants, quote, "...the whole and entire Catholic doctrine is to be presented and explained. By no means is it permitted to pass over in silence or to veil in ambiguous terms the Catholic truth regarding the nature and way of justification, the constitution of the church, the primacy of jurisdiction of the Roman pontiff, and the only true union by the return of the dissidents to the one true church of Christ. It should be made clear to them that in returning to the church they will lose nothing of that good, which by the grace of God has hitherto been implanted in them, but that it will rather be supplemented and completed by their return. However, one should not speak of this in such a way that they will imagine that in returning to the church they are bringing to it something substantial, which it has hitherto lacked. It will be necessary to say these things clearly and openly, first because it is the truth that they themselves are seeking, And moreover, because outside the truth, no true union can ever be attained. So there we have it. The Catholic Church teaches that the only legitimate religious unity that can be had according to the faith taught by Jesus Christ is by all people being Catholics, submitting themselves to the true vicar of Christ and the bishops in communion with him, By adhering to the faith taught by this church, and by participating in the same worship, right? Same Mass and sacraments that are authorized by this church. And by persevering in communion with the other members of the church. That's it. And that is the perennial immutable teaching. It cannot change, and it's not negotiable. And yet... That is the one thing that Vatican II ecumenism excludes as a goal. And that goes to show just how diabolical that ecumenism is. It's not about converting souls to the true church. It's about accepting other religions, other denominations, as also somehow part of the true church of the mystical body of Christ. Remember what Vatican II says in the Decree on Ecumenism, Unitatis Redintegratio, number three, namely, it says that, quote, all who have been justified by faith in baptism are members of Christ's body and have a right to be called Christian and so are correctly accepted as brothers by the children of the Catholic Church, unquote. And so they actually believe in a divided church. They believe that the body of Christ is not one in faith, government, and worship, but is divided. And the task of ecumenism, according to the Novo Ordo understanding, is to heal those divisions and establish what they call full communion with each other. But that is a heretical position because it is a dogma of the Catholic faith that the mystical body of Christ is one and undivided. In the Nicene Creed, we profess, I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And in his encyclical letter, Mystici Corporis, Pope Pius XII clarifies as follows, quote, Actually, only those are to be included as members of the church who have been baptized and profess the true faith and who have not been so unfortunate as to separate themselves from the unity of the body or been excluded by legitimate authority for grave faults committed. For in one spirit, says the apostle, were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether bond or free. As, therefore, in the true Christian community there is only one body, one spirit, one Lord, and one baptism, so there can be only one faith. And therefore, if a man refuse to hear the church, let him be considered, so the Lord commands, as a heathen and a publican. It follows that those who are divided in faith or government cannot be living in the unity of such a body nor can they be living the life of its one divine spirit. Unquote. That's Pope Pius XII in Mystici Corporis number 22, issued in 1943. Let's remember, too, that in his encyclical Humani Generis of 1950, Pius XII teaches very clearly that, quote, the mystical body of Christ and the Roman Catholic Church are one and the same thing, unquote. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? Now, in 1951, the same Pope Pius XII issued the encyclical letter Sempiternus Rex. In paragraph 37, referring to the Eastern Orthodox, Pius XII wrote, quote, "...but alas, for long centuries many of those who dwell in the East have unhappily fallen away from the unity of the mystical body of Christ, of which the hypostatic union is the most luminous prototype. Would it not be holy, salutary, and in accordance with the will of God, that at last all these should return to the one sheepfold of Christ? Unquote. So there we have the very clear teaching that the Eastern Orthodox are not part of the mystical body, are not part of the onefold of Christ, but are called to return to it. But that is contradicted, as we just saw, by Vatican II, and it is also contradicted more recently by Pope Francis, who said to the Russian Orthodox patriarch Kirill, quote, we are shepherds of the same holy flock of God, unquote. So, the contradictions could not be any more obvious. And this is where logic comes in. Anyone who says that the Vatican II teaching, the teaching of today's modernist Vatican, is correct must logically say that the teaching of Pope Pius XII and all his predecessors was false. But if Catholic teaching can be wrong for 1900 years, and on such an important and fundamental matter to boot, until the glorious 1960s came along, well, then you cannot say that the Catholic Church is the church founded by Jesus Christ. Because Christ's church, we are told in 1 Timothy 3.15, is the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, it would not be a solution to say that Vatican II simply corrected what the Catholic Church had gotten wrong for 19 centuries. No, it is Vatican II doctrine that is wrong. And the only way that is possible is if the man who ratified the documents was not, in fact, the true Pope. Because remember that each of the 16 Vatican II documents, including this decree on ecumenism very specifically, was solemnly promulgated by Paul VI as follows. And I quote, Each and all of these matters which are set forth in this decree have been favorably voted on by the fathers of the council. And we, by the apostolic authority given us by Christ and in union with the fathers, approve, decree, and establish them in the Holy Spirit and command that they be promulgated for the glory of God. Unquote. It is impossible that the man who spoke these words was the Roman pontiff. Had he been a true pope, he would have dropped dead before being able to approve this council. And you can look this up for yourself. Check the show notes for the link to the decree Unitatis Red Integratio, where you will find that formula of promulgation Include it at the end of the text. And for those who are not yet familiar with how this works, everything quoted or mentioned on Tratcast that is of any significance you can find properly documented and linked in the show notes, which you can access by going to Tratcast.org and then scrolling down until you see a link to this particular Tratcast episode, which is Tratcast 34, and when you click on that, it will then take you to the full page for that episode, and that will have the notes and links and everything you need right there. Okay, so that's tradcast.org. Scroll down until you see episode Trapcast 34, and then click on that link. Now, we've just said a lot about the mystical body of Christ. And with that, I'd like to segue to something related, something Francis said in early November, when he visited the Muslim Kingdom of Bahrain. On November 4th, 2022, the false pope met with members of the Muslim Council of Elders. And of course, he gave an address there, since he always has a lot to say. And naturally, it was filled with poppycock. Okay, Now, most of that I already addressed in a blog post, which I'll link in the show notes. One of the things Francis said is that transcendence and fraternity alone will save us. Well, I did say it was poppycock, right? Well, you see, he was addressing Muslims. So, of course, he wasn't going to say anything that might actually lead them to Jesus Christ. Instead, it was all just on the lowest common denominator of a shared humanity and appeal to one Most High God without, of course, mentioning Father, Son, or Holy Ghost. But that was covered in the blog post. But there was another thing Francis said to Muslims that I didn't address in my post, and it is this. Quote, Let us encourage one another to forget the past and sincerely achieve mutual understanding, and for the benefit of all, to preserve and promote peace, liberty, social justice, and moral values. These are duties incumbent upon us as religious leaders, in a world that is increasingly wounded and divided, that beneath the surface of globalization senses anxiety and fear, the great religious traditions must be the heart that unites the members of the body, the soul that gives hope and life to its highest aspirations, Unquote. Wow, that is a mouthful. Let me repeat the main portion here. The great religious traditions must be the heart that unites the members of the body, the soul that gives hope and life to its highest aspirations. What body is he talking about? Obviously not the mystical body of Christ, the church. No, he's talking about humanity. And you're more than welcome to read the entire speech so you get the full context But yes, it's clear from the context that he's speaking about humanity in general, whether baptized or not, whether believers in Christ or not, theists or atheists, doesn't matter. He's saying that for all of humanity as a whole, the various religions need to be the force that unites all humanity, a force that gives hope and life to the highest aspirations of all mankind. Now, since Francis used the metaphor of people being members of the body of humanity and the religions being the heart and soul of that body, ladies and gentlemen, would it be unreasonable to say that Francis might have just given us a first glimpse of the mystical body of the Antichrist? And why am I saying that? Because... Remember what Pope St. Pius X wrote in his 1903 encyclical A Supremi, paragraph 5. Referring to St. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, Pius X says that the distinguishing mark of Antichrist is that, quote, man has with infinite temerity put himself in the place of God, raising himself above all that is called God, in such wise that although he cannot utterly extinguish in himself all knowledge of God, he has contemned God's majesty, and, as it were, made of the universe a temple wherein he himself is to be adored. He sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as if he were God. Now Francis is proposing the idea of a humanity that has a purpose apart from supernatural union with Christ through sanctifying grace. But there is no ultimate goal for humanity other than the beatific vision in eternity. The goal of seeing God face to face, the one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the goal of seeing this God is the reason for which each and every human being was ever created in the first place, and ever will be created. There is no other vocation for mankind. That is why it is so important to seek the conversion of all people to the Catholic faith. But Francis, being a modernist, doesn't believe that, of course. He doesn't believe that the Roman Catholic religion is objectively true, that it has permanent and objective validity for all time and all people. And in a speech to the Muslim Council of Elders on November 4th, he just confirmed it again. And notice how he increasingly refers to the various religions simply as religious traditions. Don't underestimate the significance of that choice of words. See, by framing religions as mere religious traditions, he is slowly trying to change people's understanding of religion from a system of faith and worship rooted in divine revelation to a conglomeration of cultural habits and practices with no objective claim to being true, much less revealed by God. The idea is to make all religion relative and subjective. You know, we all have our beliefs, we all have our traditions, our preferences, our opinions, what we grew up with, what gives us strength and and meaning and identity. And that is exactly how Francis has been acting from the beginning. Recall, for example, that in 2014, when he was addressing refugees, some of whom were Christians, others were Muslims, and he told them, that they should find solace and strength in their respective religions, Christians by turning to the Bible and Muslims by turning to the Quran. Don't believe it? <laughs> We've got video of it, and I'm including it in the show notes. It was January 19, 2014, at Sacred Heart Basilica in Rome. Francis said the refugees should have meetings— to talk about the terrible hardship they'd encountered that made them leave their homeland. And here are his words verbatim. Quote, Sharing our experience in carrying that cross to expel the illness within our hearts which embitters our life, it is important that you do this in your meetings. Those that are Christian with the Bible and those that are Muslim with the Quran." The faith that your parents instilled in you will always help you move on. Folks, there is not one ounce of Catholicism in this man. I don't need to explain that the Quran is not from God. It contains horrible blasphemies against the Holy Trinity and insults against Christians, among other things. But Francis believes that Muslims are just fine as Muslims, because Francis is not a Catholic. And so, obviously, he is not interested in converting people to Catholicism. Why should he? It's not his religion either. Instead, he wants to have people of all religions united under some kind of lowest common denominator, something about transcendence and human fraternity, precisely as he preaches. And he's getting there, slowly, gradually, step by step. He has replaced the Ark of Salvation, the Catholic Church, with the Ark of Fraternity. Yes, he used that term, Ark of Fraternity, in 2019 in Abu Dhabi, and I'm linking it in the show notes. He has replaced the Anchor of Salvation, which is the supernatural virtue of hope, with fraternity. Yes, he called fraternity the anchor of salvation for humanity back in February of this year during a video message for the International Day of Human Fraternity. He has replaced the gospel with the wisdom of the elders, as he called it, and he's replaced our blessed Lord Jesus Christ with transcendence and fraternity. Here's what he told Muslims on November 4th, 2022. Quote, Amid these tragic scenarios, while the world pursues the illusions of strength, power, and money, we are called to proclaim with the wisdom of our elders and fathers that God and neighbor come before all else, that transcendence and fraternity alone will save us. Unquote. We know from the Catholic faith that the way to the goal of our existence is Jesus Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him, as we read in John fourteen six. And we also know that his way is the way of the cross, which he traced out for us. But at the Interreligious Congress in Kazakhstan this past September, Francis proclaimed that man is the way for all religions. We know from our holy faith that what God has revealed is absolutely certain, since God can neither deceive us nor can he be himself deceived or make a mistake. And so we know that all dogmas of the Catholic faith are more certain than than anything else. And yet, in a so-called Pope video of January 2016, which focused on the topic of interreligious dialogue and cooperation, Francis denied this when he said of the various religions, quote, "...many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways." In this crowd, in this range of religions, there is only one certainty we have for all. We are all children of God. Unquote. And we could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. The indifferentism, the modernism, the liberalism, it's through the roof. It's a complete repudiation of the Roman Catholic faith. And those of us who might think that this is only a Western phenomenon, that all Catholic Orthodoxy is being preserved in the Eastern rites, need to look again. Because although the Eastern rites have preserved their liturgical traditions, as far as I know, they are still in communion with Francis and accept all of the teachings of the new church, from John the XXIII and Vatican II all the way down to Francis's latest contributions to the false Novus Ordo Magisterium. And you can see that demonstrated in a shocking way in remarks made earlier this month by Cardinal Louis Raphael Sacco, who is the Chaldean Patriarch of Baghdad, Iraq. Let me quote from an article published by Asia News on November fourteenth, 2022 which uh, summarizes and quotes bits and pieces from the patriarch's speech. Here we go. Quote, We are all responsible, warns the Chaldean primate, for what happens on our planet and in our country. God, he warns, will not ask whether we are Shia, Muslim, or Sunni, a Catholic, Christian, or an Orthodox, but will judge on our concerns and for what we have done for our sisters and brothers only this morality he warns can truly guarantee peace and security that are the way and the light for eternity Unquote. This is blatant indifferentism and to show that let me quote Pope Gregory the 16th from his landmark encyclical Against the Errors of Liberalism, Marari Vos, published in 1832. Quote, now we consider another abundant source of the evils with which the Church is afflicted at present, indifferentism. This perverse opinion is spread on all sides by the fraud of the wicked, who claim that it is possible to obtain the eternal salvation of the soul by the profession of any kind of religion, as long as morality is maintained. Surely, in so clear a matter, you will drive this deadly error far from the people committed to your care. With the admonition of the Apostle that there is one God, one faith, one baptism, may those fear who contrive the notion that the safe harbor of salvation is open to persons of any religion whatever, they should consider the testimony of Christ Himself that those who are not with Christ are against Him, and that they disperse unhappily who do not gather with Him. Therefore, without a doubt, they will perish forever unless they hold the Catholic faith whole and inviolate. Unquote. This again was Pope Gregory the Sixteenth from his encyclical Merari Vos, paragraph thirteen. Or take the following from Pope Leo XIII, quote, Everyone should avoid familiarity or friendship with anyone suspected of belonging to masonry or to affiliated groups. Know them by their fruits and avoid them. Every familiarity should be avoided not only with those impious libertines who openly promote the character of the sect, but also with those who hide under the mask of universal tolerance, respect for all religions, and the craving to reconcile the maxims of the gospel with those of the revolution. These men seek to reconcile Christ and Belial, the church of God and the state without God. Unquote. That was Pope Leo XIII from the encyclical Custodi di quella fede number 15. That was published in 1892. Now, this describes Bergoglio to a T. He preaches universal tolerance and respect for all religions, and he tries to twist the gospel into a promotion of Masonic liberty, equality, fraternity. So, you can see just how obvious the departure from the pre-Vatican II teaching is. It is clear that we're not merely talking about a change of emphasis or a development of prior teaching. We're talking about a contradiction to the traditional teaching. If the one is true, the other must be false. And now we'll take a quick break and return in a few minutes with more Tradcast. Tradcast.
1: Are you a traditional Catholic homeschooling family looking for a solid curriculum? or are you just interested in great Catholic books? Then visit stjeromelibrary.org and learn more about our extensive traditional Catholic offerings, including lesson plans and materials for preschool to grade 12. Operating since 2018, St. Jerome Library and School is run by a traditional Catholic Sidivacontist family St. Jerome's School uses both classic and original books, including works by our clergy, such as Bishop Donald Sanborn and the late Father Anthony Cicada. Nothing should be compromised when it comes to the faith, especially not our children's education. Visit stjeromelibrary.org. That's S-T-J-E-R-O-M-E library.org.
0: It's not just a podcast, it's It's a a trap -cast. cast. Back again with the second segment of the 34th episode of Trapcast. Novos Ordo, watch for your ears. And by the way, please don't believe the rumors. We said Epicontists are not more Catholic than the Pope, we're just more Catholic than the Anti Pope. All right. Before we continue with the program, let me just give you a quick heads up that this is the last big podcast of 2022 as the end of the year is approaching and fast. And if you would like to support this apostolate with a tax-deductible financial contribution, you can easily do so by going to novosordowatchorg donate there you will see what options are available online or offline to make a donation to keep the nonprofit organization alive that is responsible for this podcast and for the Novus Ordo Watch website that org is called Interregnum Foundation and it is thoroughly dependent on the voluntary goodwill offerings of individuals like you so if you benefit from this content, or if you think other people benefit from it and consider it worth supporting, please consider making a donation at novusordowatch.org donate. Okay, enough of that, and now let's get right back into it. On February 11th of this year, yes, I know, many months ago, I saw an article on the official news website of the Society of St. Pius X, the SSPX, and the title was, We Must Maintain Tradition and Pass It On. Now, that title made me chuckle because it is so ironic for the Lefebvreists to say that, and for several reasons. First, they themselves do not maintain tradition, nor pass it on, and I'll say more about that in a minute. And secondly, that it is the job of the Holy See to maintain tradition and pass it on. It is not the job of a self-appointed parallel authority rivaling that of the supposed Holy See. Yes, I know the SSPX was originally founded with the approval of the local bishop, but that approval was eventually withdrawn. Right, Archbishop Lefebvre was suspended and eventually declared to have excommunicated himself. Besides, when the SSPX was founded in 1970, it wasn't founded with a stated intent to correct the errors of the Holy See, or to function as a stand-in that keeps the gates of hell from prevailing while the Holy See goes off the rails and leads the church into apostasy. Let's recall the words of Pope Pius IX. Addressing his bishops, he says, Now you know well that the most deadly foes of the Catholic religion have always waged a fierce war, but without success, against this chair. He's talking about the chair of St. Peter. Against this chair, they are by no means ignorant of the fact that religion itself can never totter and fall while this chair remains intact, the chair which rests on the rock, which the proud gates of hell cannot overthrow and in which there is the whole and perfect solidity of the Christian religion. Therefore, because of your special faith in the church and special piety toward the same chair of Peter, we exhort you to direct your constant efforts so that the faithful people of France may avoid the crafty deceptions and errors of these plotters and develop a more filial affection and obedience to this apostolic see. Be vigilant in act and word, so that the faithful may grow in love for this holy see, venerate it, and accept it with complete obedience. They should execute whatever the see itself teaches, determines, and decrees." That's from the 1853 encyclical *Intermultiplices* of Pius IX, paragraph 7. And I've quoted this multiple times in the past on this podcast because it needs to be repeated again and again because you're probably not going to get this from the SSPX or similar Recognize and Resist outfits. It contradicts their position completely because it makes clear that as long as there is a pope reigning, as long as the sea remains intact, as Pope Pius says, the Catholic Church cannot be overcome. Similarly, Pope Pius VII, in his encyclical Satis*, had written, quote, "...men should realize that all attempts to overthrow the house of God are in vain, for this is the church founded on Peter, Rock, not merely in name, but in truth. Against this, the gates of hell will not prevail, for it is founded on a rock. There has never been an enemy of the Christian religion who was not simultaneously at wicked war with the Sea of Peter, since while this sea remains strong, the survival of the Christian religion was assured. Unquote. Again, that's Diosatis paragraph 6 of uh, Pope Pius VII. Now, given all this clear, solid teaching, the question, of course, arises, well, how come everything fell apart, so to speak, after the death of Pope Pius Twelfth in 1958? And there is only one possible response. The men who appeared to be in charge of the Catholic Church were not, in fact, real popes. And that is quite a claim, isn't it? And yet it alone can explain what has happened. The colossal apostasy, the massive loss of faith in so many souls, the collapse of religious life, the perversion of true doctrine, the turning of the Holy Mass from the sacrifice of Calvary, into the sorry Novus Ordo happy meal that goes on at your local parish, and so on and so forth. These are consequences, these are effects, which require a proportionate cause. Think about church history for a minute. It's been roughly 2,000 years since our blessed Lord died on the cross, and from there the church came into existence from the sacred wound in his side. And this church began with only a handful of apostles who had been tasked essentially with converting the entire world. Not by force, of course, but by preaching the gospel, baptizing, teaching, ordaining, and so on. These men had to battle the immense Roman Empire on the one hand, which was debauched, idolatrous, and utterly cruel— And on the other hand, the unbelieving Jewish synagogue. And for both the Gentiles and the Jews, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which the apostles began to preach, was considered madness. On Pentecost Sunday, they started with a total of only 11 men. And yet, their mission was successful. Even though the doctrine they were preaching, the Holy Gospel, was not terribly appealing in a worldly sense. I mean, what Roman soldier, for example, would have wanted to hear about having to believe in a crucified Jew who rose from the dead and now gives us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink so that we will have eternal life after death, and that in order to make it to heaven— We have to believe not only in his doctrine, including that of there being one single God who is nevertheless Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but also that of keeping the Ten Commandments, practicing mortification, and undergoing every sacrifice in order not to lose the state of grace. It was simply not something the average Gentile would have had an interest in hearing about. And of course, the same was true for the Jews, whose official leaders, the high priests and the Pharisees and so on, were even persecuting the apostles and telling the other Jews not to join what they thought was this nutty sect. And that's why St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, indeed a stumbling block, and unto the Gentiles foolishness. And yet, the apostles and their successors were able to carry out exactly what the Lord had commissioned them to do. They were successful. The church spread and grew, and although starting from a tiny seed, became an immense tree, just as our Lord had foretold in Luke 13, verses 18 and 19. To what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and became a great tree, and the birds of the air lodged in the branches thereof. And so until the death of Pope Pius XII in 1958, the church survived in marvelous fashion every persecution, every infiltration, every human weakness and ineptitude, every malice, every heresy, every sin, every oppression, every evil. Clearly, all that is a miracle. It cannot be explained by natural causes alone. The only thing that can sufficiently explain this is the supernatural help of Almighty God. The propagation and endurance of the Catholic Church is a social miracle whose author is God himself. But then, all of a sudden, it seems like that protection, that divine assistance was withdrawn, so that within a few years, that huge, marvelous, glorious Catholic Church collapsed into a small remnant of those who still adhere to the same doctrine and worship the Church had up until the death of Pius Twelfth, while the rest, following false shepherds, went astray into so many of the very errors that had been condemned by Pius XII and his predecessors. At this point, the institution that calls itself the Catholic Church is unrecognizable when compared to the Catholic Church of Pope Pius XII and before. And by that, I mean specifically when you compare the doctrine and worship of the two. Unrecognizable. How is this possible? That is the great mystery of our time, but we've not been blindsided entirely. Let's take a quick look at what Father Sylvester Berry, who was a seminary professor in Maryland, wrote in his book, The Church of Christ, first published In 1927, quote, the prophecies of the apocalypse, he's talking about the book of Revelation here, the prophecies of the apocalypse show that Satan will imitate the church of Christ to deceive mankind. He will set up a church of Satan in opposition to the church of Christ. Antichrist will assume the role of messiahs. His prophet will act the part of Pope, and there will be imitations of the sacraments of the church. There will also be lying wonders in imitation of the miracles wrought in the church. Unquote. That's on page 119 of the 1927 edition of Father Barry's The Church of Christ, and that book is available uh, for free. It's been scanned in. Uh, the link you can find in the show notes. There's also a 1954 edition, and uh, the page numbers, though, don't line up. So if, if you have the 1954 edition, you can find that quote on a different page. Now, in his discourse regarding the end of the world, which you can find in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21— Our blessed Lord spoke not only of great turmoil and confusion, persecution, wars, and bloodshed, but also of a great spiritual deception. Let's not forget that in order for a deception to be great, to be impactful, it has to be pretty clever. And so, there will be false miracles to make that great deception even more, well, deceptive. Our Lord told us so. So stay away from purported miracles and private revelations and things allegedly revealed in an exorcism in our day. If you give credence to that, you're begging to be deceived. The safest thing to do is to adhere firmly to the teachings of the Catholic Church until the death of Pope Pius XII. That cannot be wrong. And besides, it is our obligation to adhere to those teachings anyway. And we have to do that even if we don't know or cannot explain everything that has happened since the passing of the last true Pope. Why does God permit a great deception? A deception so great that almost everyone will fall for it? It is a punishment for sin. Listen to St. Paul the Apostle. And then that wicked one shall be revealed whom the Lord Jesus shall kill with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, him whose coming is according to the working of Satan, in all power and signs and lying wonders, and in all seduction of iniquity to them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved." Therefore, God shall send them the operation of error, to believe lying, that all may be judged who have not believed the truth but have consented to iniquity." Unquote. That's Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verses eight through 11. Can anyone doubt that what we have witnessed since the death of Pius the is precisely? this operation of error in action. Now, obviously, on account of everything that has happened, we have great reason to lament. But let's not forget that we have even greater reason to rejoice, because what we have been witnessing is the fulfillment of prophecy, which confirms the truth of what we believe. We know all this ends. We know who will win in the end. We just have to make sure we will be among the sheep and not the goats when our Lord comes to judge the living and the dead. And so just as the Catholic Church is a social miracle which proves her divine foundation because her growth and triumph would not have been possible without a sufficient cause— which is the supernatural assistance of God, so the collapse of Catholicism after Pius XII, especially after Vatican II, must likewise have a cause that is sufficient to explain it. So, what is it? God has promised, in the words of Pope Pius IX, that the Catholic religion cannot totter and fall while the chair of St. Peter remains intact, because this chair rests on the rock of St. Peter, which the gates of hell cannot overthrow in accordance with the divine promises. Now, we know that God, who is all good and all powerful, is always faithful to his word. He cannot lie, he cannot deceive us, and he cannot make a mistake. He does not go back on his promises for the papacy. And yet, we see an apostasy unfolding after the death of Pius XII, not right away, but gradually, and it begins with John Twenty-Third. But God has assured his assistance to even the most inept of Roman pontiffs so that the church will never go astray. Yes, popes can make bad decisions, and bad decisions can have terrible and harmful consequences even for the church. But popes cannot, whether deliberately or by accident, Popes cannot turn the Church away from her divine mission. Listen up, Eric Sammons. Nor can they make the Church lead souls to hell instead of heaven. They cannot pervert her magisterium with heresy. They cannot make the holy sacrifice of the Mass into a Protestant meal service with a Jewish table blessing. They cannot invalidate the Church's sacramental rites and they cannot canonize false saints. If we look at the spiritual wreckage that is before us today, whether in Rome, in the Vatican, or throughout the world, of anything that goes by the name of Catholic Church and yet is affiliated with Jorge Bergoglio and adheres to the Vatican II religion, it is clear that this could not have been caused by any men who were assisted by God. But since the popes are assisted by God, unfailingly, we have certain proof that the alleged popes after Pius XII were not, in fact, true popes. So, just as only God's assistance to the papacy can explain how even the weakest, most inept, and most immoral of popes could keep the gates of hell from prevailing against the church— keeping her doctrine pure and her sacraments unstained, so it is the lack of God's assistance for the alleged popes after Pius XII that can explain the top-down apostasy that began with the election of Angelo Roncalli as Pope John XXIII on October 28, 1958. But then the lack of God's assistance for John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, John Paul the 1st, John Paul the 2nd, Benedict the 16th, and now Francis can only be explained if these men were not true popes, because otherwise it would mean that God isn't faithful to his promises, which would be a blasphemy. Now, some people will object and say, Well, what are you talking about, God's assistance? The Pope is only infallible when he defines a dogma ex cathedra. Well, that's not entirely true, but be that as it may, we're not talking about infallibility right now. We're talking about a more general divine assistance that God has given to the church through the papacy. And no, I'm not making this up. This is standard Catholic teaching, and if you've never heard about that before, it's probably because you've been getting your information from recognize and resist sources such as The Angelus, 1 Peter 5, The Remnant, Catholic Family News, The Fatima Center, or Crisis Magazine. So, I'm including a link in the show notes to a lot of quotations from the Catholic Magisterium regarding the papacy, so you can verify all of this for yourself. The perennial Catholic teaching is that it is the Pope and no one else, not an Archbishop Lefebvre or Bishop Schneider or even a Saint Athanasius. It is the Pope who keeps the Catholic Church always adhering to Christ, to his true doctrine, to the true and unstained worship, and to salutary law and government. And the Pope can only guarantee all that because he is himself assisted by God. As Pope Pius XI wrote in his encyclical Casti Canubii, paragraph 104, a characteristic of all true followers of Christ, lettered or unlettered, is to suffer themselves to be guided and led in all things that touch upon faith or morals, by the Holy Church of God, through its supreme pastor, the Roman Pontiff, who is himself guided by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Unquote. And so, the only way to explain what happened after Pius the Twelfth is to posit that the men who succeeded him were false popes, false shepherds. That alone can explain that what all the evils. All the heresies, oppressions, and persecutions against the Church could not accomplish in 1,900 years the abominable Second Vatican Council and the false shepherd that imposed and perpetuated it accomplished in but a handful of years. Let that sink in. All right, and for our last item here on this Tratcast 34... Let's have a look at one of Francis's favorite topics, and that is mercy and forgiveness. No, there's nothing wrong with preaching God's mercy and forgiveness. I mean, we all need that. But of course, in Francis's case, he preaches a false mercy and a false forgiveness. And he does this not only by what he says, but also by what he doesn't say. This year, on April 14th, which was Holy Thursday, Francis visited a prison in the city of Civita Vecchia, north of Rome. He washed 12 prisoners' feet and he preached a homily in which he said the following God forgives everything and God forgives always. We are the ones who grow tired of asking for forgiveness. Each of us, perhaps, has something there in our heart which we have been carrying for some time, which agitates, some skeleton hidden in the closet. But ask Jesus for forgiveness. He forgives everything. All he wants is our trust to ask for forgiveness. You can do it when you are alone, when you are with others, when you are with the priest. This is a beautiful prayer for today. But Lord, forgive me. I will seek to serve others, but you serve me with your forgiveness. He paid the price like this, with forgiveness. This is the thought I would like to leave you today. Serving, helping one another, and being certain that the Lord forgives. And how much does he forgive? Everything. And until what point? Always. He does not tire of forgiving. We are the ones who grow tired of asking For forgiveness. Now, a secular person will probably hear these words and say, Oh my goodness, how spiritual, how loving, how merciful, how Christ like, how wonderful. But what Francis said there is thoroughly misleading, erroneous, and even heretical. First, Let's look at what this false pope did not say. He did not say one word about repentance, much less about the kind of repentance necessary to obtain God's forgiveness. He did mention two or three conditions necessary to obtain forgiveness, but none of them had anything to do with repentance. The first condition he mentioned is that we ask God to forgive us. And he claims that we can just do this with a simple prayer. Nothing there about contrition, nor about the sacrament of baptism or the sacrament of penance. Apparently, these are useless, according to him. And the second condition he mentions, kind of, is having the certainty of being forgiven, having trust in God's forgiveness, which sort of goes along with asking for forgiveness. And the third condition he comes up with is a quasi-amendment of life, by which he means eh, simply the desire to help other people from now on. That's it. That's Bergoglio's idea of being forgiven of all of one's sins by God. It is unbelievable. Now, to be clear, it is very important to preach the great mercy of God toward any and all sinners, no matter how evil they have been in the past, if only they will repent. And yes, God will pardon even the most horrific of sins, including the foulest blasphemy, including witchcraft, Satanism, murder, abortion, sodomy, anything at all, if only the sinner will repent. But what is repentance? Well, it is not, as Francis suggests, simply asking God for forgiveness and being willing to help out at the local soup kitchen from now on. Nor is it a simple regret for having sinned. Look at the case of Judas Iscariot, for example, right? He regretted betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver. He even gave back the money. But he didn't have supernatural contrition, and he didn't seek forgiveness. Okay, let's have a look at the Catholic teaching. I'm just going to go by a little booklet called Confession, Its Fruitful Practice, first published in 1957, which is an excellent little guide for the sacrament of penance and the conditions necessary to obtain God's forgiveness. And I'm putting a link to it in the notes so you can access that electronically, free of charge, or you can purchase a copy if you like. In order to make a good confession, five things are necessary. An examination of conscience, contrition, purpose of amendment, confession with absolution, and satisfaction. Now, I don't want to go into each of these in any detail. I really only want to focus on contrition because that is the most important element. Uh, that That is the repentance part, right? So, first we have to understand what our sins are. That's the examination of conscience. Then we have to be properly sorry for those sins. Then we have to seriously intend not to commit sin again, at least not mortal sin. And then we must confess those sins to a priest and receive absolution, and then we must make satisfaction for our sins, that is, we must perform the sacramental penance the priest gave us in confession, and if applicable, we have to make restitution. For example, if we have stolen money, we must give it back. If we have ruined someone's reputation, we must make an effort to restore it, and so on that should be discussed with the priest as far as what needs to be done and in what manner. In any case, let's talk about contrition, something Francis didn't mention at all to those poor prisoners who would certainly have been in need of hearing it, you know, instead of just, oh, pray for forgiveness and you'll be forgiven. True contrition, the kind needed to obtain God's forgiveness in confession, has four qualities. It must be interior, it must be supernatural, it must be universal, and it must be sovereign. So, what does all that mean, though? Let's see. For contrition to be interior, it means that one's sorrow for sin must come from the heart. It is essentially an act of the will. It's not some external show, like putting on sackcloth and ashes. And it's not necessarily something that produces any kind of emotion, either. It can be accompanied by an emotion, but feeling is not necessary. Next, contrition must be supernatural. Let me quote directly from the Confession booklet on page 15. Quote, True contrition is supernatural. It is an actual grace of the Holy Spirit and it is aroused by supernatural motives. The principal supernatural motives are 1. The infinite goodness of God 2. The suffering and death of Christ 3. The loathsomeness of sin 4. The everlasting reward lost by sin 5. The everlasting punishment of To which sin makes one liable. Now, this supernatural contrition may be perfect or imperfect. Imperfect contrition is enough for having one's mortal sins forgiven by a priest in the sacrament of confession. But outside of that sacrament, mortal sin can still be forgiven, but for that, perfect contrition is required. Let's briefly explain both, again quoting. The Confession Booklet, quote, "...perfect contrition is sorrow which proceeds from a pure or perfect love of God, who is infinitely good and perfect in himself and deserving of all our love. It is sorrow for sin because sin displeases God." Perfect contrition immediately cleanses the soul from all guilt of sin and reconciles it to God, even apart from the sacrament of penance. Perfect contrition always includes at least an implicit desire and intention to receive the sacrament of penance, and the obligation to confess all mortal sins still remains, even after one has made an act or acts of perfect contrition." And then there is imperfect contrition, which we already said is enough to make a good confession. The confession booklet defines it as, quote, That supernatural sorrow and hatred for sin, which arises from reflection on the heinousness of sin, from dread of the loss of heaven, or from fear of hell and its torments, unquote. So page 19. So, in short, the difference between perfect contrition and imperfect contrition, in terms of the motive, is that perfect contrition arises from the love of God, whereas imperfect contrition arises from the fear of God and of His punishments. Both, however, require God's grace. So, you always want to pray for the grace of true contrition for your sins. Next, contrition must be universal. That means that in order to be able to have our sins forgiven, and here we're talking about mortal sins, we must be sorry for all of them, even if you can't remember all of them, because we can't get absolution for only some of them and not for others. If we're not contrite for all of our mortal sins, then we're really contrite for none of them. There is no middle ground between the state of grace and the state of mortal sin. Your soul cannot be in both to an extent. It's either in the one state or in the other. The two are mutually exclusive. So, with regard to mortal sin, contrition is an all-or-nothing matter. That is not the case for venial sin because venial sin is not incompatible with the life of sanctifying grace. So, so far we have seen that contrition must be interior, it must be supernatural, and it must be universal. Lastly, contrition must also be sovereign or supreme, meaning that it must be our greatest sorrow, more so than sorrow for losing all of our earthly possessions or our family members. Again, it's not a feeling we're talking about, but an act of the will. So, That is a brief overview of the basics regarding contrition. And you heard none of that from Francis. And by the way, if you're new to this whole topic, please don't take my explanations here as a complete presentation of the subject. It's not. I'm just going over some important elements that Francis habitually neglects. And my goal here is just to show the stark contrast between the actual Catholic teaching and the Bergoglian blather about how you just need to ask God to forgive you and you trust him and you're forgiven. That's false. That's heresy. And by saying that, Francis certainly did not do those prisoners any favors. Now, it's okay to say, hey, look, he can't explain everything during a brief sermon in a prison. Okay, fair enough. But, It's not just that he didn't explain it all in detail, he told them things that are false. It is false to say that all you need to do is ask God for forgiveness, and even your most heinous sins are forgiven then. That is simply not true. So anyway, you can find more information about contrition and the conditions for a valid and fruitful reception of the sacrament of penance in an article on the topic from the Catholic Encyclopedia, which I'm including in the show notes, and then also a link to more information about perfect contrition as the key to heaven. Now, I've been saying that Francis' comments to the prisoners about forgiveness are heretical. So, it's time to prove that. What Francis said is heresy— condemned by the Council of Trent in its sixth session on justification against the errors of the Protestant so-called reformers. Listen to this. Canon 1. If anyone shall say that man can be justified before God by his own works, which are done either by his own natural powers or through the teaching of the law and without divine grace through Christ Jesus, let him be anathema. Canon 12, if anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be anathema. And Canon 13, if anyone shall say that it is necessary for every man in order to obtain the remission of sins to believe for certain and without any hesitation due to his own weakness and indisposition that his sins are forgiven him let him be anathema now there are probably a few more canons that will be applicable to what francis said but i think these 3 will be enough to make the point you can find these in denzinger beginning at number 811 and It's not like Bergoglio doesn't know he's preaching Lutheranism, right? Protestantism. Because, remember, on his return flight to Rome from Armenia in 2016, Francis said that with regard to justification, Martin Luther, quote, did not err, unquote. Find it in the show notes if you don't believe me. So it's clear that Francis is preaching Lutheranism, Protestantism, and he's doing so boldly and with pertinacity. He distorts the gospel and deprives it of its strength by preaching heresy and grave error on such a fundamentally important matter as how to obtain the forgiveness of one's sins. And he's doing that by what he says, by what he does not say, and by placing excessive emphasis on forgiveness and mercy while at the same time de-emphasizing God's justice and the consequences of sin, especially the eternal consequences. Have you ever noticed? Bergoglio practically never mentions God's justice or his punishment of sin, except when he can use it to advance his political agenda, then he suddenly remembers there are, you know, things like moral obligations and that God judges us at the end of our lives for how we've treated others. And, you know, it would be bad enough if Francis spread this false mercy doctrine in his sermons. But no, he also instructs his own Novus Ordo priests who hear confessions never to refuse absolution to anyone which is an outrage and a sacrilege. I'm linking an article from the Daily Compass on that, dated November 15th. The priest has an obligation to ensure, as far as he reasonably can, that the penitent has sufficient sorrow for sin and that the absolution will be valid. If a priest were to absolve a penitent who confesses his sins but isn't really sorry for them, or tries to hide some mortal sins— The absolution would be invalid and a sacrilege. This goes to show that France's false mercy doctrine is not an accident, an unfortunate choice of words or something. It's got real method behind it. It seeks to destroy very deliberately the true Catholic understanding of sin and forgiveness and God's mercy. And the long-term effect of this will be, of course that people are encouraged in their sins. Oh, God never tires of forgiving, don't you worry. right? Or they come to confession half-heartedly, without real contrition and purpose of amendment, and then they receive an invalid and sacrilegious absolution. Now, true, most Novus Ordo priests aren't even validly ordained, so it's going to be invalid anyway, but that's not the point now. And so what Francis will have accomplished in the end with his false mercy doctrine is that he will have encouraged people to sin more, to not take sin all that seriously, and to presume on God's mercy. People will have no understanding of what is required for true repentance, and they will be deceived by invalid absolutions in confession. All the while he looks incredibly holy and merciful In the process. Pope Francis Jorge Bergoglio is an anti-Catholic charlatan, a deceiver, a false prophet, a fake pope, and a spiritual criminal of the worst sort. And you know why he can do so much damage? Why he can successfully deceive so many? Because people recognize him as the pope of the Catholic Church. Take that recognition away from him, and there's nothing left but Jorge the Apostate. And now we have come to the end of Tradcast 34. Hope it was of benefit to you. Don't forget to check the show notes at tradcast.org. Thank you for listening, and tune in again next time. God bless you.